Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go! Okay, welcome to segment two of our panel. Let's jump into to AI. Um, there's there's a, been a big push uh, from a lot of CEOs to actually pause development of AI for the next six months. Uh, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, executives sign off on that. We've seen, I think it was like one of the, the heads of AI for Google, right? Like actually stepped down um, a few months back, right? Um, I think we covered that in a previous show. Mm-hmm. Andrea, do you want to give a, an overview of the uh, the situation? What's the the latest kind of word on the street as it comes to AI development right now? Yes, the letter is not necessarily super fresh news. This happened a few weeks ago. ago. However, some things have happened with that letter in the meantime. There were some voices saying that some of the names on there were fake and they actually were. Some researchers' names were used in that letter that actually came forward afterwards saying, no, we actually did not take part in this. So there was a bit of a blunder there. Uh, There were some funny names as well that had no connection to the situation. So were clearly fake. Mm. Uh, So that was one side of it. Although the the letter is very real for some, for Elon Musk, for example, for some other people as well. Although I did notice some people that are still critics of AI, but also critics of the letter. And what one person specifically I found interesting, um, she was saying, yeah, so Margaret Mitchell, who was an ethical researcher at Google, she argues that What they're saying in that letter, that's the issue, specifically Elon Musk saying that an AI will take over the world and enslave humans and whatever else he's saying, that's not necessarily the biggest issue. And that's kind of my opinion as well. I mean, we might get there, but I don't really see it now. The more immediate concerns are others, for example, this information, which I think is something quite interesting to to discuss. Uh, it's not very accurate. It has a very precise and specific function when it comes to chat GPT. Um, so there's a lot of other concerns and many researchers are saying this. Um, so that's kind of where we're at with the letter. And I know that Sam Altman also came forward in uh, an interview or I think, Sam, he was present at a conference or something. And he those things on stage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I know he mentioned a few things as well, and I think I'll let you, Sam, take it from here. Yeah, so Sam Altman uh, went into court and said that we need regulations around AI, and I'm not disagreeing with that at all, but he he took a very, you know, AI is extremely dangerous. I'm not even sure about all the, the dangers, but I know it is. And he had a little bit of an interesting doomsday approach, even though his product, OpenAI, is what's being talked about most on the market right now. I took this as a kind of hilarious way of beating out the competition because he's telling these people, put in regulations, put in policies, put in procedures. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. That's That needs to happen, yes. Um, and when they sat there and scratched their head and thought about, you know, how are we going to do that? He's like, oh, you know, let us do it. Um, so I will be careful. And I yeah, saw I, I promise. 
which um, I found super hilarious. <laughs> he said about the letter, I'm not sure if in the same instance or not, he said about that letter signed by the CEOs, we are doing other things on top of chat GPT-4 that have all sorts of safety issues, and those are not mentioned in the letter. So he's basically saying we're doing far worse stuff that could have far worse implications, and you're not mentioning them. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> And when we when we double down on, you know, what are these dangers? What is going on? And even uh, the quote from Margaret Mitchell, you mentioned, Andrea, she was somebody who I think was referring to the the biases um, and AI, AI learns and then puts in process what it has learned. So if it's learning from humans who are naturally biased, it will have biases uh, mm-hmm. to combat this. You obviously need, you know, you could have AI that directly combats that. Um, people are also citing, you know, AI will take away jobs. Our good friend, the computer took away jobs <laughs> and it's been around since the 1940s, but it has given yeah. us so many others. Mm-hmm. So I think it's funny to see these people who are monetizing this use fear, a great motivator to continue promoting uh, and putting in front of us like what, you know, what that this new technology is. Yeah, and that's well, I, using it to curb uh, competition. I think just like getting it to the bias conversation, like, well, you know, people are also incredibly biased. Um, so like, I think just like when as generative AI and these types of things are, you know, as it relates to hiring, like I, whatever reason, like the analogous argument that like pops into my mind is always like self-driving cars, hmm. and, like the hesitancy for us to trust technology. But I've, I've read a lot of articles and and you know, I, I encourage like if, if, if you guys have a, have heard something different, but it, it appears that um, across the web, like autonomous, like self-driving cars seem to be safer, at least at some point will be safer, but seem to be safer than human driven cars. There's a lot of human error uh, and distraction that causes accidents, but we still feel uh, that, you know, that would be like less safe than uh, we don't necessarily like the idea of giving up control. But I mean, even though like we could develop the technology to actually be, you know, much more effective than uh, having people uh, making these decisions on the road. So I think it's the same with generative AI. Like, of course, there uh, we need to be aware of of bias uh, creeping in. That's that's a huge problem. But I don't think that the problem with bias is really like tied to the hip with generative AI. It's still like human nature, regardless if humans are doing it, or AI is doing it. The, the problem isn't the generative AI, it's people. Yeah, but I would say the, the important thing to stress here and that these people I think are stressing is that, hey, let's focus on talking about bias and let's pause maybe the development for a bit of time to talk about bias, to talk about disinformation and some of the other concerns and not that it's going to transform into a killer robot like overnight, Right. That's all I'm saying. That's fair enough. But I think it is important to kind of stress that. Like, yeah, let's talk about it, but let's talk about the important things in it. Regulation. Like what's regulation is going to be important. And that's like the probably going to be like one of the biggest problems. Right. I think, too, it's like when you just look at like the growth rates of the industry, I don't know who dropped this link in here, but it's whoever did. Thank you. Um, But, you know, they're looking at like all the funding that has occurred this year. Um, but which has has been you know quite a lot. It's it's growing faster than any other market segment uh, right now, and and they currently are saying that the uh, 
you know, compound annual growth rate of generative AI is going to be like they're projecting it at 27% year over year, which is kind of nuts, right? Like, and there's currently like a $10 billion valuation for generative AI by 2025. That's going to more than double. Um, and so they, they really see this as, you know, this is also kind of a huge opportunity, like within like every type of solution, whether it's like talent acquisition, people, everything else, like it's just, it's, it is going to transform everything. And it's, it's accelerated also just by, by the, the sheer amount of funding that's going into this. I think it's like, you know, there a lot of, uh, you know, it says Q1, 2023, generative AI startups completed $1.7 billion in funding across 46 deals. Uh, another 10.6 billion deals were announced, but not completed during that quarter. And 13 generative AI startups have reached unicorn status with 1 billion or higher valuations. And this is from an article on explodingtopics.com. We'll drop the link to this article uh, in the description of the episode. So you can you can take a look. It has a lot of other really cool insights, but uh, it definitely is an exploding market, right? And I'm kind of curious, like how much of this is going to drive like market rebound too, like within market the rebound. tech industry? You mean within bringing back jobs or what are you referring to? I don't know. I mean, that's like kind of what's interesting about it, right? Like, I think it probably will create a lot of jobs, at least at, at first, like within the tech industry, because there's so many companies being built up to develop, like open AI is hiring like crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not like because they have generative AI, like they're not hiring people. Mm-hmm. Like they're hiring a ton of people to build out this technology. I mean, there could be like, of course, like the long-term ramifications. I think we, you know, Andrea, you had researched on a previous panel, like, a jobs report or like there was kind of like a international kind of study done on like the amount of jobs that will be disrupted due to AI over the next five years. And I think it was like 23%, right? Is what they're... Yeah, something around there um, that some of the jobs will be disrupted, but they can't really tell how many new jobs will be created. So mm-hmm. there's still that factor that we need to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to tell if it'll be like a net gain or a net loss. I think we just mm-hmm. can't, we don't know yet. So I will say I've seen, so some of our clients are in like the software development space. So I have seen some really funny, like quippy LinkedIn posts where they're like, oh, well, the only way that AI could really replace developers is if clients were able to clearly articulate what they want. And that's never going to happen. So we need to worry (laughs) about it. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's definitely like, I've heard from a lot of like engineers that they're just not really concerned. And I wonder how much of that is like really like, accurate versus like like overconfident maybe a little bit of bias it's like like when i see recruiters like you know the middle of like last like q4 of last year being like there's still like you know all these companies hiring like they're you know what i mean like it's like yeah okay like it there Mm -hmm. there are companies hiring and i'm not like there are and there's balance and like that's part of the balance that we share too but like there's also sometimes i felt like some recruiters were like kind of going overboard in terms of what they were sharing with the market. Like now's the time to hire, you know, it's like, well, maybe it's not the time to hire, you know? So as it is right right now, AI cannot create new things. It cannot be innovative. So although I feel like, especially chat GPT, when that first came out, software engineers were the first to be testing it out and playing around with it. They quickly found out, you know, it can't do really more than what a, a well-functioning, good software engineer could do. It could just yeah. kind of copy and paste code that already exists. You could just go and get that. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a really, that, I love that point. So like AI mm-hmm. isn't necessarily able to, to innovate. 
for now it's able to optimize though right like machine learning is all about optimization and that that that's the thing they're using the AI term like super i don't know arbitrarily here and it's a word jumbler at the end of the day i mean it has a bunch of data and words and it puts them together in how it thinks you would like it to hear sometimes it's accurate sometimes it's not it is useful but for very specific things as a tool i don't know to generate some keywords that you need for recruiting and you save some time, stuff like that, not necessarily creating something new from scratch. Yeah, I hear you that it can't like innovate, but it can definitely write well. Like I've seen a lot of different people talk about how they'll just do blind A-B tests between like what actual human beings write and what Chad GPT writes, like for like, you know, give it a prompt, whatever. And then they'll vote on which they think is the most effective messaging and the chat GPT written work often wins. And so that is, yes, it's not creation, but because they are copying and pasting and and kind of taking direction on tone and stuff like that, it's kind of the same thing. It's the same outcome, at least as, as human creation. For sure. I mean, it depends for what you're using it, right? This is something where it's a good use case, but if you want to write a book, where you actually right come up with an idea, actually write a book based on your thoughts. I don't think it's going to be as good as the humans. Or I hope. God, I hope not. If if AI is writing books, like what are we even doing? Wait, something recycled. Like it's not going to be new. It's going to be based on prior data that it had. Like, yeah. So and even if it's good, it's kind of going to be like I'm stealing this a little bit, but like Photoshop. When we look at something that's photoshopped. At this point, we could tell it was Photoshop and we could say, okay, it looks fine. It looks good, but it's not real. I feel like Mm -hmm. we're going to take that kind of approach Mm -hmm. to this. Like we'll eventually pick up on what's new and what's real and versus what's, what's not. Sorry, Bridget, go ahead. Oh, it's quite all right. So I had asked um, ChatGPT a question earlier, and its response to me was, as an AI language model, I don't have access to real-time data or the ability to browse the internet. My knowledge is based on information and available to up until September of 2021. So it's combing historical information. So to your point, Sam, yeah, it's totally not innovative or driving future, um, but it's providing information based upon history and what it can find. So it's it's not driving growth, but it can provide better context on mm-hmm. topics. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's a resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not a Mm -hmm. replacement, but a a tool to actually help us, hopefully. And and this might be interesting. We're going to share this article in the description as well, but this is an article by Gartner. And from polls that they've done, basically primary focuses of generative AI initiatives. Number one, 38% customer experience and retention. I find that really interesting. And you know my thoughts on like the best people in town acquisition organizations being run similarly to like revenue organizations. So I think there's a lot of parallels and opportunities within town acquisition and employee experience. So if 38%, I'd be curious to like look into, of course, like what TA and people products are being developed, but like, come on, let's be fair. Like there's going to be more companies developing products for like customer retention uh, and experience. And I'm wondering like what parallels we could see there. like. What are companies doing across the board in terms of creating generative AI uh, for customer experience retention and how that could be applied to like employee lifecycle? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's really interesting. 
Then it looks at 26% of initiatives are going towards like revenue growth. 17% are going towards cost optimization. That's actually surprising to me that 38% is going through customer experience or retention and 17% is going toward cost optimization. I would have thought that cost optimization would have been the biggest segment. That was an assumption that I made. Are they defining that as like figuring out how to price? Is that what they mean by that? Or what do they mean by cost optimization? I don't know what that means. I think they mean like lower label costs. I think they mean like, or yeah, like finding things to cut out of their budget as a result of leveraging generative AI. This is, by the way, this isn't like what companies are currently doing. This is talking about initiatives, like what companies are developing generative AI to do in the future. Got it. Like then then 17% of the stuff being developed is for cost optimizations. Meanwhile, 38% is being uh, developed for customer experience and retention, which I wouldn't have, I would have thought cost uh, optimization would have been number one. My theory is they already did it. So that's why they don't need to focus on it for now because they already did it in the last year and a half, two years. (laughs) No, I actually think that those statistics make sense for what AI could do right now and what it's immediately projected to be able to do because Hmm. building relationships, I mean, it's not a talking about building relationships. It's maintaining relationships already there, which just needs a cadence. You can automate a cadence cost Mm -hmm. optimization. You need to let it completely run on its own. And it can't, I don't think it could do that right now. You need people still checking things and making sure it's, it's working well. Interesting. I mean, maybe some of it's too, it's like they're looking at where market opportunity is, like what types of products are people going to spend the most money on? Mm-hmm. So yeah. like maybe maybe they just feel like there's more of a, a buyer market for customer experience, retention, revenue growth. Companies are always thinking about driving revenue growth. Mm-hmm. Maybe companies yeah. are like less, they're not putting as much strategic thinking into cost optimization, maybe. And also, I think we know from Pavilion um, reports and some other reports that I've seen, companies are really focused and have been in the past few months are on expanding their existing client base on customer success. They know it's super important mm. to minimize uh, churn now more than ever. <laughs> so yeah, I hear that's right. Like that's a like a huge like a really good point to make is where the market is right now. People are focused on retention, like the. Lifetime value to CAC ratios, right? Like basically how much it costs to acquire a customer uh, in comparison to how much money you're going to make off that customer. Like those ratios are totally screwed up right now because Mm -hmm. it takes so much money to acquire a new customer in this market for a lot of folks. So they're focused on retention uh, and not really focused on like just, you know, tripling their customer acquisition cost Mm -hmm. at an unsustainable level that doesn't make sense financially. Yeah. And so we are seeing a much heavier investment in, in a customer experience and retention. So maybe you're right. It's like that market alignment. But also that's weird. It's like, because you're building this technology now, but by the time it's built, we might be in a different market condition where people are valuing well revenue growth, which is the second highest segment. So there you yeah. go. I guess that makes yeah. sense based on where we are in terms of our market cycles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cost optimization. And it's always going to help you, right? If you make that investment in retention, it's going to help you in whatever market, if you're doing a good job in retaining your customers, right? Yeah. I, I one of the, there's um, this guy, uh, what's his name? His last name is Cunningham. And he wrote this book that I, I loved. It's like the blueprint for running an insanely successful business. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that he said was, uh, 
imagine where your business would be today if you worked, if you still worked with every customer you ever had. Mm. Oh, wow. Right. Like basically his point is like, you have gotten better at understanding who your target customer is over time. Is that the well, point? He's just saying like, imagine if you didn't churn any customers, like from day one, where would your business be? How would it be different if you retained every customer you ever had? And mm-hmm. so his point was like, the focus should always be on retention. Mm-hmm. Like, you, Cause otherwise it's like sort of building on quicksand. Right. And so like yep. the more stable your contracts are, the less churn you have. And so like having that mindset as a company, it's like, you know, that, that is just, it's, it's smart. And yeah. how does it say to do that to retain every customer ever? What's the your thoughts? It compounds year over year. If every, you know, even if you acquire one or two new customers every year, because you've held on to all of them. Mm-hmm. Exponential yeah. growth. Yeah. Or yeah, to as many as possible, because that's what I think this author is kind of hinting at. You'll probably not get to 100% retention in all of your years. That's probably not going to happen. But if you have some initiatives and are really focused, you can get that percentage as high as you can. And that's going to compound exactly. Well, and typically for a business, it's less expensive to retain and expand a client than it is for them to actually go out in the marketplace and find new business and, and onboard and everything else. So it's just for it creates a healthier bottom line and a more profitable business when you've got historical data on an account. If you're lo- looking to position, position yourself for an event, you've got this history and you're not always having to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of our most successful clients at just here at Secure Vision are ones that have the lowest turnover with their own clients. Yeah. Mm, I mean, that's that's like a huge, I mean, a big part of our revenue strategy, right? Is pushing up market to more stable, right? Uh, you know, larger mm-hmm. customers, right? Bigger contracts, ideally like longer term engagements, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that should be the focus of, I think pretty much every, you know, how do you kind of maximize that lifetime value, right. Of, of, of the customer relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. So I find that, I find that very interesting in terms of, um, uh, I forgot who asked, but Keith Cunningham, by the way, is his name, uh, in his book, in terms of how he discusses how to do that. He's a lot, like his focus is more so on the financial side. It's not on the strategy side of like how to implement that. It's just more so from a financial perspective, he's getting you to think like, imagine where you'd be financially. And so solve that. Right. Um, and then he has like a lot of other, like he's, he's speaking to an executive audience that may not be sophisticated in finance. So mm-hmm. he talks a lot about like, here's what you need to be looking at when you're looking at a PL, a balance sheet, a cash flow statement. Um, here are some areas you should be careful when it comes to costs, right? Mm-hmm. Here are some things you need to be thinking about with customer experience, like, but more so just from the financial lens of running an effective business. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like, I think for people that are, you know, early stages of thinking about starting a company, um, it's a really good, it's a really good book to to read. So again, it's like the blueprint for running an insanely successful business. And he also has like a, a book that's pretty good called uh, The Path Less Stupid. And it's like, it's, it's basic advice from chairman of the board. And, uh, uh, it's basically just like the big mess ups that he's had and like the things to like do to like avoid those kind of mistakes, which I, I thought was, uh, it's kind of a clever title that I, 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 I yeah. here's what I messed up. Don't do that. 
yeah. God's sakes, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyways, that's a, that's a good book. Well, I, you know, I think as a topic here, uh, this one not on the the agenda directly, but I just curious as in town acquisition recruiting, when it comes to generative AI, what functionality would would you all like be most excited about from you know your job end to end? as talented people, professionals, like where, where do you see the biggest opportunities or like what would make your life easier to deliver a great experience to your candidates and to hiring managers? Oh, uh, streamlining interview process in terms of setting it up, collecting feedback and providing the feedback right back to the candidate. So when you say collecting feedback, like how would that work? I, I mean, that's not something that I think exists or could even exist right now. But I would love if there was a good way of people have to take notes anyway when they're providing feedback on a candidate. Um, if that could go directly into a source, you know, organized well, and then even be brought back in a clean way to the candidate to say, okay, you know, we love your experience. This is what we love. We're moving forward. Or here's what we liked. You know, here's what we're looking for. It doesn't completely match up. We're moving on. Thanks. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, oh, go ahead. I have a meeting next week with a tool that does somewhat what you're saying, I think, Sam. It records your conversation with the candidate. You don't actually need to take the physical notes yourself. You can be in that conversation. Then it transcribes after the conversation in text everything. It probably does need a bit of cleanup. I still need to review the, the tool. And then it makes that information into something that's either for the candidate or the client. I can't remember, but yeah, I think there are some stuff out there and I I'd agree with you. It's something super useful for recruiters because it kind of cuts down on it. And of course you can customize, like if you feel that you want to add more to a note, you can definitely do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a really good use case, right? Like if you can have a kind of AI tool recording a call if you can put in, you know, like the structured interview questions and the key kind of traits and skill sets and whatnot, uh, and, and basically the AI can put that data in the ATS, like so that hiring managers like actually don't need to take notes and it can yeah. basically evaluate the quality of the answers and then help kind of indicate which candidates should move forward in the process automatically. Because like, think about how like shitty, like the ATS is with hiring managers, like not putting uh, feedback into the system. Yeah. I also think that there's, I, I had a guest on the show. What, what he does is really quite interesting. He maps performance review data with the quality of the interview questions to see if he can find correlations between what's discussed and how they're doing performance wise with how they answered questions in the interview process which I found really interesting, right? So it's like that feedback loop opposed to like the antidotal, like, like, oh, this person's good or that person's not. It's like, let's look at that person's performance. Let's map it to how they answer the interview questions in, in aggregate. Can we see that candidates that answered and provided this type of context or answered actually achieved better results? And so I think like from a data mapping perspective, there's also kind of like an opportunity there for you know AI and, and automation and data mapping for for that type of functionality to be more front and center where like you have better analytics of like tracking performance and then like seeing how you can optimize 
the interview process to, you know, like to tweak, like specific things to tweak based on data and anal- analyzing, right? I think that that's pretty cool too. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. really cool. very smart too. Mm-hmm. Like a good way yeah. that he, he, this person figured out how to do that. Uh, we work with a lot of early stage companies though. So sometimes it's tough when, when we have hiring managers that come and say, I've never hired this position before. We have no previous data, find someone. So I wish there was a repository of things like this for similar companies. Right. Well, so by the way, his name is Jeremy Rutsch and he runs a company called Bandolier, which uh, they basically do like embedded sales talent for tech companies. And Mm -hmm. so like they're hiring for inside salespeople, like at scale essentially. And so they have like a use case of like one type of role. And so they're Mm -hmm. able to like map the significant amount of data back into their hiring process and see like uh, to optimize based on the data they're seeing from a performance standpoint. The other thing I think it like, again, like that based on my like recording episode with, uh, with Jeremy was like evaluating performance faster. Like, can you collect data in the onboarding that would indicate whether or not somebody is on track to produce good outcomes? So like, of course, the first thing is optimizing talent acquisition to hire the right people but we're probably not going to have a hundred percent hit rate, even with AI and all this extra data. Cause there's just so many factors that go into performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the earlier you can catch some kind of indicator that somebody is not going to perform the less uh, of an impact that could make on the business team members, whatever outcomes, right. It could protect. So like, of course we need to give people time to grow into the role, but I'm saying using data, if you can find that three weeks in, there's a strong data point where if there's some kind of behavior or disconnect that leads to like a 75 or 80% fail rate, then that like you can catch it faster and try to like help somebody make the improvement or also just make sure that your team or company or whatever is not as vulnerable to that individual that is struggling, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I found that interesting versus like, I think how it's typically done is like, you don't really know till like six months or a year in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so it's like if you could catch that a month in based on pretty consistent data, I find like that's a really interesting use case for technology too. With the caveat of like I would hate to be like oh the data says you're not going to be a good performer so we're going to let you go thirty days. No, ahead. no, that's obviously inappropriate. Like <laughs> obviously, I, I, right, yeah, right. I, I'm not like suggesting this kind of cold like I, I'm just it's suggesting so like if you're like here's the thing right like. If somebody's not going to work out in six months and there's a way to know that in three months, first off, there's a better chance to put them on a performance plan sooner, not from the perspective of working them out, but in a perspective of helping them right track. Like, can you also track like, okay, when we get people in this program earlier to, you know, to make sure they're back on track, we actually have a a lower fall off rate Mm -hmm. because we can identify earlier on that there's a problem. And so we actually have fewer performance issues after six months or a year. Yeah, I love that. That that could also be used as like a selling point to candidates. Like, hey, we're tracking and analyzing how we're onboarding in an effective way. So we can uncover if you're on track and help you optimize your ramp. Yeah, and make you as successful as possible. I think it's it's like, like that. Yeah, it's like there's that upside potential too. But there's also like, again, like if somebody like unfortunately is hired, that's like not the right fit. You want to know sooner rather than later because... If somebody's not the right fit and affects the entire team, like we've all worked with somebody that like, where you just feel like you're carrying weight or something, mm-hmm. yeah, or like it's just not working, and you know maybe they're 
there's a million reasons, right? Some under people, sometimes it's under someone's control, sometimes it's not. And it's unfortunate, but like just burying our head in the sand and like waiting a year, like you want to give people time, but you want to optimize that time. Mm-hmm. You want it to be an appropriate amount of time that doesn't impact other people as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But that's also saying that a company has an idea of what success looks like and what onboarding should look like so that there's a plan in place so that someone has the tools and resources to be properly onboarded. And then what those KPIs are identified. So success looks like this. And so we can measure this individual at onboarding during onboarding to these specific characteristics and measurements. So that way the tool actually can be continuing to evolve as they are. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. It does. Let's start out with uh, the story about CNN CEO published uh, in Atlantic publication. Uh, I guess, you know, he's since then been uh, let go. Who wants to take on kind of a providing a summary here on this topic? I feel like Sam's in the best shape. Yeah, go Sam. Yeah, Sam, I think you're in the best shape. Let's do it. Hilarious. Like, okay. <laughs> so Chris Lick. When Chris first came on 13 months ago or so, don't quote me on that exact uh, time frame. He came after his predecessor, who had been at CNN for years, uh, was removed or, or let go or however you want to frame it due to um, sexual harassment. Chris Lick came in, but very like quickly, they just needed somebody to come in and start running the show. But from the beginning, Chris, he didn't seem to be involved with CNN's workings in, in a positive way. He had a lot of criticism of CNN and what they were doing. He wasn't really bought into the culture, which is not going to go very well if you're now running the company and you're the face of the company. Yeah. Um, so what he, one of his missions or what he really wanted to do was push uh, or, or start to gain right-wing viewership. Um, and the the final moment or the crux of this came from the town hall with uh, previous president, uh, Donald Trump. And it, it went very badly. It was a very half-baked, very flashy plan to, like I said, attract the right-wing audience, but it was done in such a way that it turned off that viewership and their current viewership. Um, and ratings absolutely plummeted. During his entire year there, the network brought in 750 million, which was down um, from 1.25 billion, I believe, from the previous year. So they, you know, it was almost half. So he didn't show a lot of good leadership, didn't execute upon his ideas and plans very well, and was ultimately let go. The the criticism from the Atlantic publication. Andrea? I haven't dug too deep into that, but from what I understand, he did have um, an interview with The Atlantic and there were several other, several issues in that article. Sam, if you can help me out, I think he was getting way too granular and kind of upset about some small things happening at CNN, kind of citing those, not really seeming very excited about what he was doing or CNN showing even more the lack of vision, the fact that he liked them. Yep. I think it was beyond more than an interview. I think they they followed him around with a camera and started documenting things that were going on for a period of time and just picked up on a lot of really nitpicky, somewhat unprofessional things from somebody who is the, the CEO of a, a major corporation like CNN. Um, 
So that's, that's how it was framed. It, it felt a little bit vague because it was a little bit vague. It was a lot of underhanded comments and things like that. Yeah. Right. From what it sounds mean? like he like acted like a disgruntled employee of a company while he was the CEO. Like that was just a kind of a weird look for him. <laughs> and like the little details, like you mentioned, nitpicky for sure. But like him moving up to the 17th floor and like being very far away from his employees, like physically, like, okay, why? Like, what does that mean? And so, yes, the Atlantic article dug into a lot of little details like that, but kind of putting them together with his kind of disastrous year at CNN, the issue was like, what is this guy doing in this position? Like, why is he the CEO? So. Yeah. And it kind of shows, I think probably the overall lack of vision, at least for now. And in the past few years of CNN and kind of the lack of, clear direction. What do we want to do? Report the news ideally, but we all know there's a lot more going behind the scenes. So I feel like they're somewhat floating and trying to see where they're going to land and how hopefully they will get someone with a better vision of more of an understanding of of their viewership, what they want to see, how to report the news ideally as objectively as possible and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I wish that to an extent, CNN would address issues with more broad appeal, because whether you're right-wing leaning, left-leaning, there are, you know, national issues we are facing that affect both sides. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I see CNN not really covering those issues. They just gloss over them and, you know, put whatever is flashy and and exciting or potentially fear-inducing and then go, okay, we're done here. Yeah, Yeah. because we're fighting the other side, not necessarily discussing policy or what people want, right? There's this fight between the sides. That's what we need to maintain, I feel, is what the media is. It's like leaning into viewership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, honestly, like... We're a $1.25 billion company last year because that's unfortunately what sells and that's what gets gets you. Well, I also wonder, too, it's like my initial impression when it's like maybe becoming more of a a center... uh, platform right that is appealing to a broader audience at first i was like well i mean is that is that i guess like just earnings based where they think they can capture more earnings or is that like more so mission based where it's like providing kind of news and elements i suppose to um that can that can you know potentially like idealistically you know be a more helpful or whatever, like to cover topics that maybe, or cover, cover angles or whatever that maybe traditionally seen and wouldn't have. Um, and maybe it was like some combination of both, but I think like, it just sounds like they're, yeah, like the audience was really turned off by um, how, how they approach that. So it's just like from a, you know, business perspective, I suppose it's like kind of being out of touch with your core base Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I think at the end of the day, like these news stations, all news stations, like they kind of understand who their core base is and they really play into that heavily. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like really bothers. Like I don't like every news station like that I I've watched and I don't really like, there's other ways to get news <laughs> uh, besides no, these channels, which I like, I try to stick to like Google and reading just kind of like a bunch of different articles and whatnot. Um, because like, God, I don't know. It just seems like it keeps getting worse. Like the arguments presented are just like not based on like reason and logic and data. Mm-hmm. It's just like playing into emotions that just seem to like, they're just trying to appeal. Like what are the belief systems of our base? 
Mm-hmm. And let's just like really feed into that and get people like emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and just it like, it's almost disgusting to watch. It, honestly, It's at the shallowness level of like a soundbite. It really doesn't get beyond that because again, yeah. that's how they keep their viewers attention is they go from soundbite to soundbite. So it's not a place for thoughtful discourse. You're absolutely right, James. Mm-hmm. Not a place for thoughtful discourse. Yeah. I don't know. It just seemed like the, this got a lot of media coverage, the CNN thing. And it sounds like to me, it's like, Bad fit, poor judgment, mm-hmm. nothing like crazy other than just like a massive, like kind of F up in a sense, right? right. Like, like, why would you contribute to an article that's going to bash your company or to a public hit? You know what I mean? Like, well, you're under insane scrutiny when you're the CNN CEO. So I think that's why it got so much coverage. It's basically, like, he's a public figure because the company is like a media company. I think it's it was. I don't think he really knew or understood that it was going to be presented in the negative light that it was. And, and from a lot of other stories, uh, he was apparently deeply ups- or, you know, somewhat obsessed with his predecessor who, yes, once again, he was removed and let go and he was brought in, but everybody loved that individual. He was there at CNN for a long time. He really like bought into the culture, really developed the culture. People there liked him. I think if Chris maybe made more, took more of an interest in the culture at CNN and in the people, maybe his ideas could have been executed in a much better way. You know, people would have actually supported them and and delivered better uh, advice. What's, what's his last name again? Um, L-I-C-H-T. I did read something funny. I, now, we would need to fact check a bit more, but I read it somewhere credible that he was quite obsessed, as you said, Sam, about his predecessor and how loved his predecessor was, mm-hmm. that he actually was doing some deadlifts. I'm not sure if that was maybe even in the uh, interview and in that video interview with the journalist, but he was doing deadlifts and he was saying, oh, my predecessor c- could not lift this. Like, let's <laughs> lift this. <laughs> Which is insane. Absolutely insane. If loved true. by the people, but I could lift. So yeah. maybe that's what's going to make the people love me, right? Mm. So it doesn't It doesn't really sound like he had been in a position even remotely close to like a CEO role. No, not before, at all. Like he was basically an executive producer of like Stephen Colbert show, right? It just sounds mm-hmm. like a late night show. Yep. Like that's a huge jump to being then the CEO of a publicly traded, they're mm-hmm. publicly traded, I'm assuming, or are yeah. they? They are. And well, anyways, it's a, it's a huge company. So how do you go from like being an executive producer? It was a, a show. time. They needed someone to come in at least now though, that Chris is out, they didn't do the same mistake. They've now brought in a team, I think of three or four individuals to start <laughs> leading CNN until they figure out what to do with themselves. I think it's kind of funny. So I'm on his wiki page because I was looking for his background. He doesn't have a LinkedIn profile. It's messed it up. First mistake. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but it's funny, like notable work. Uh, the Late Show, Stephen Colbert. Uh, oh, I guess that's what they were talking about. They weren't talking about uh, the Colbert Report. They were talking about the uh, Late Show. Uh, our cartoon president, CBS This Morning, Morning Joe, like it doesn't have C- uh, CEO of CNN as his notable work. 
Oh my God. That's hysterical. <laughs> Fair. That's probably just because it happened so recently, but still, I just got a little giggle out of that. I don't know. I feel like Wiki's like day by day updates. So. It really is. Notable accomplishments. Not being CEO. <laughs> it was right. notable, but not an accomplishment. So it didn't make the list. You yeah, know? exactly. They're like well, infamous as opposed people to people at Wikipedia got together. They're like, do we put this in this section? No. I don't <laughs> nah, better not. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> yeah i don't know i feel like we're seeing a lot of leadership faux pas like over the past year or two probably too people are turning a more critical eye to leaders as earnings are decreasing across the board so mm-hmm. that's probably why we're seeing this more in the news and mm-hmm. um i like this was like an obvious like uh issue in in terms of like the ceo judgment and awareness in my opinion mm-hmm. like it's very hard to say that this is just i mean the one earnings is one thing but like there's, you know, this wasn't like a subtle mess up, right? Or something where it could be taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Oh, he said like one thing and, you know, he shouldn't have, he, he meant this, but it sounded like this. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole thing, and right? And he did apologize and own it. He did he say did. Like, he, I mean, he seems like a up. decent human, just a total lack of awareness. Yeah. Not a C, not a trained CEO. Yeah. No. Not, not, not somebody who was ready for that role. I mean, I mean if you think about them, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say quick that everyone has a shot at redemption. Go ahead, Bridget. No, but some of the things that he had to deal with and didn't have the experience to deal with was the dismantling of CNN Plus. That was an epic failure for CNN. Their subscription service, which was supposed to be groundbreaking for them, didn't succeed. And so he was faced with that. And then we have the other... um, cultural things, you know, with Don Lemon leaving and some of the other big um, broadcast leaders that were part of CNN being caught up in some challenging times personally and professionally and the culture that they created there that he was dealing with. He wasn't equipped to. So he isolated himself and pulled himself away from everything that was going on in the business. So he didn't have allies within the organization to help him drive things forward. He did it to himself. It sounds like, I mean, the one thing I'd say is like, you know, a lot of the times like CNN and uh, executive CEOs or even like chief revenue officers or VPs at startups and scale-ups, right? Like they're kind of put in the hot seat so that a lot of the times equity owners aren't. Mm -hmm. And like the reality is a lot of times stuff is driven by board. Board is making the big decisions on when you can hire, when you can fire kind of strategic decision, like putting pressure, but they're never going to like take the heat. And so like, you know, the one thing we could be, and I don't know if this is the case is like, again, this was like an obvious screw up on his part when it comes to like his communication and decision-making, but like, I don't know if like necessarily the earnings problem was his fault. It sounds like he walked into like a total like mess. Right. And is the CEO really going to correct it? Did the board even think he was going to really, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe they kind of just, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a big, it's a big problem to to shift momentum of an organization of this size. Like I'm not maybe the right person can do that. Right. He didn't seem like he was the right person. He wasn't qualified, but also like he walked into a very, very tough. It yeah, it was like, like the perfect storm in a way, how I yeah. see it. I know that they were acquired and are uh, under Warner Brothers. I'm not sure exactly when the acquisition happened. I need to check. But that's a component of it as well. You're not just CNN. You're CNN and you have to speak with uh, Warner Brothers and you have to run everything by them. So there's that component to it as well. Yeah. I wonder if the decline started with that. When did that acquisition happen? 
Let me look that up actually. 2022, was it that recent? Kind of aligns with a... Or wait, actually, there's been an update, it seems. It seems that now Discovery has taken control of both Warner Brothers and CNN that was under Warner Brothers. (laughs) And I knew about this sale, HBO Max, everything went to Discovery now. (laughs) I wonder how much of like those acquisitions could potentially play a role. And surely do, probably. Okay. Does anybody have any other thoughts? No. Cool. Uh, Nice. Thank you for joining us today. We had a great time. Uh, I hope everybody here tuning in had a had a great time, as much fun as uh, we did. And uh, we're looking forward to chatting with you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.